I'm Kendi Easley. I'm the executive pastor here at Bethany, and I am so excited to be uh, bringing to conclusion this sermon series that we've had on rhythms and rediscovering rest and rediscovering restoration. And in this passage, Jesus is bringing this amazing news, and he's bringing it in a surprising way to people who are really not excited about a change. There are people who are pretty happy happy with their Sabbath because Sabbath was a treasure. And I want to start today as we begin to step into the scripture with a reminder about how Sabbath started. Sabbath was on Friday, it began on Friday evening for the Jewish people and it would go for 24 hours. And a lot of preparations were needed in order to get to that Sabbath moment. Because once Sabbath started, you weren't supposed to do any work, paid or unpaid. No household chores, no washing the dishes or turning on the dishwasher or starting a fire or ripping anything. And Richard went over all those rules last week. But it started with a candle lighting. And usually the woman of the household, or if there were a young girl, she would have the responsibility of lighting the candles. And there would be two candles. And these are just candles off my dining room table. The little glass holders were my grandma's. And it's one of those things where every time I get them out, I think about her. I have a friend whose family was Jewish. Her great-great-grandmother fled from Lithuania. And what did she grab when she left? Their two candlesticks. So Sabbath, Shabbat was very important. It was a foundation for Jewish people. And on the evening, as the sun would be setting, Shabbat would begin. And there are two candles. One is to remember all that God has done. Yes, we still have liquid in here, I hope. Yes. And the other is to keep the Sabbath holy. And then a prayer is said, almost inviting the flame, inviting the Sabbath. And the woman would even close her eyes and cover them and then suddenly open them to see that moment of the flickering flame. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for holy moments. We thank you that you are Lord of all, that you are Lord of this present moment that whatever we have entered into this room with, we thank you that we have been singing songs of praise, songs of joy. We thank you that we're surrounded right here in this room by people who are seeking to worship you today, seeking to be in your presence. We pray for those who are watching online, Lord, that your presence would be in that space with them. And our God, we ask that you would open our hearts to your word, that it would be your living word for us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I mentioned those watching online, and if you're watching online, you might, like me, need a way to concentrate on what's going on and not trying to do the dishes or multitask. This isn't my giant ancient Bible. This is my COVID watercolor book. And this is what I did during worship when I was watching it online at home. I just tried to help myself focus. So that's what Sabbath is about. It's about this presence, God's very presence. So when Jesus begins to teach in the gospel of Mark, he calls his disciples, and then he begins to teach in new ways. And the Jewish leaders are listening to Jesus, and I think they, they begin by, by kind of tracking with him, 
but they have a lot of questions about what's going on. And if you look at the end of Mark chapter one through to chapter two that we're in, there's several important questions. Jesus first rebukes an evil spirit and orders it out of a person. And people are so amazed. They ask each other, what is this? This is a new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. What is this new teaching? And then Jesus looks over the crowd and he chooses whose house he's gonna have dinner at. I don't know why he chose who he chose. Maybe they had a bigger house. Maybe he was sort of exposing the Pharisees for their lack of hospitality. But they start chattering amongst themselves, murmuring, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, doesn't he know who these people are? And then John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were all fasting and Jesus' followers were not. And they ask him, why are your followers not fasting? Jesus responds by making an analogy to a wedding feast. When the guests are with the bridegroom, they feast, they don't fast. And then he says this, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus is kind of marking the fact that he's doing something new. He's inviting them to be part of this new thing. He's calling people forward. And then comes this kind of ultimate insult, if you will. Jesus is walking on the Sabbath. Okay, so far so good. And then his followers start picking grain. They're hungry. They've been ministering alongside him and they were doing crowd control. Like they were bringing people and lowering them through the roof in order to be healed by Jesus. And his followers are right there with him, trying, trying to make this all work, trying to figure out what's really going on. And the Pharisees, these other leaders say, why are they doing, why Jesus are your followers doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Like, don't you know it's Sabbath? And I love that Jesus sort of um, refutes this. He like calls, calls on someone else to defend himself, which is David. And, and says, as Eric read it so well, don't you know what David did? David entered into the holy of holies and he g- grabbed the, the bread of the presence and he began to feed it to his followers. They went into a place where they were not allowed. They walked right up to the front and basically like grabbed the bread off the communion table and took it for themselves. So Jesus is justifying himself based on David. Why? Because the Pharisees knew and respected David. It's like if David could do that, how much more could I do as Jesus? He says this, the Sabbath was made for people, for humanity, not people for the Sabbath. But so that you know this, the son of man The human one, the God who became a human being is Lord even over the Sabbath, even over this holy of holies. God is greater. And I just picture these like Jewish leaders scratching their head, what in the world? Like we had questions and now this is starting to push us past questions. This is starting to kind of interfere with our core beliefs about God and about ourselves. Scripture goes on in Mark chapter three. The next thing that happens is it's Sabbath again. And Jesus is going in the synagogue and he's teaching, he's speaking. And there's a man with a shriveled hand there. And the Pharisees now are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal that man on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. He just invites him right up to the front. And then he looked around at the Pharisees with anger. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. They don't want to be new wine. They don't want to be new wineskins. They don't want new information. They want to keep things the way they are. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? And he looked around at them. He's distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. It looked just like his other hand. And that's when it was as though they'd had enough. And they decided that Jesus had to go. They plotted to kill him from that moment. From the moment that he declared and demonstrated he was Lord over the Sabbath. So that's part one of today's sermon. Like the setup. The deep question here is, What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of the Sabbath today? Christians celebrate Sabbath as well. We we celebrate on the first day of the week. Our Sabbath is on Sunday. We get the week started. Like we we want to put our mind around what's God going to do this week? For the Jewish people, Sabbath, uh, they worked six days as God created for six days. And then Sabbath was on the seventh day. It was a day of rest following a week of work. I've really enjoyed this book called Mudhouse Sabbath by a woman named Lauren Winner. And she uh, describes what it was like to be celebrating Sabbath because she became, in a Jewish way, because she became a Christian when she was in college and really reshaped her life. But she remembers Sabbath this way. Right after that setup and the lighting of the candles, the whole house seemed transformed. Papers and books were neatly piled Flowers stood in a vase on the table, and the golden light of the setting sun filled the room. Shabbat is like nothing else. Time as we know it does not exist for those 24 hours, and the worries of the week soon fall away. A feeling of joy appears. The smallest object, a leaf or a spoon, shimmers in a soft light, and the heart opens. Shabbat is a meditation of unbelievable beauty. She says, Shabbat is what I miss most about Judaism. It was as though the Jewish people kept a Sabbath, kept them united, 24 hours of meditation, if you will. It said the Jewish people kept Sabbath, but it was Sabbath that kept the Jews. Think of what the Jewish people have experienced over the 400 years of slavery, over the persecution that we've known in recent history. What united them? What kept them alive as a people? The the flame of Sabbath, the keeping of Sabbath together. So when Jesus brings this invitation to receive him as Lord of Sabbath, I think it comes with three exhortations that we're gonna look at today. They are the regular rhythm of our lives, the reality that our lives are measured and limited, and that we're invited to practice, to play, and to pray. So we're going to look at those today. Sabbath has this kind of reputation, if you will, of all the things that you shall not do. 
And Richard did a great job of outlining that there were hundreds of laws about lighting fires and about what was considered work on Sabbath. Even as Christians, those same laws were adopted because if Sabbath was good, we wanted it for everybody. So there was a season where blue laws were inaugurated, not just in our country, but kind of Western culture. The idea that if, if places were closed on Sundays, then everyone would, would take a rest, would be home, would, would experience renewal, would turn to God. These Sabbath blue laws were also actually used in a sort of anti-Semitic way because the Jewish people would have their Sabbath on Saturday and all their shops would be closed. And then on Sunday, cities or towns would... Um, require that all shops were closed. So there was kind of a two-day hit for people who worshiped on Saturdays. When Jesus is bringing in this new invitation, he's bringing, he's inviting us into a rhythm. This, the rhythm that they had was six to one, six, day, six days of work and then one day completely off. What, what would the rhythm be in this new Sabbath? I'd like to suggest that it's be, it would be full of shalls. You shall. Jesus summarizes the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There were shalls in Shabbat laws as well. Some of them were wild. Like you shall entertain a stranger. You shall, if you're married, enjoy sexual relations. You get extra brownie points for that if that happens on the Sabbath. You shall delight in the goodness of God. You shall notice God. You shall notice these moments of the flame because eventually it'll flicker out and you can't light it again. You shall. You shall kind of put on this mindset. I've been enjoying this devotional that um, is inviting us essentially to have a daily Sabbath, like a little Sabbath. And... Uh, this author, um, Peter Scazzaro, talks about the idea of Sabbath. He reminds us that Sabbath is also for stopping. You shall stop. We stop because it is time to stop. Sabbath requires surrender. If we only stop when we are finished all our work, we'll never stop because our work is never completely done. If we refuse to rest until we're finished, We'll never rest until we die. Sabbath dissolves the artificial urgency of our days because it liberates us from the need to be finished. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the galaxy might somehow manage without all of us for just this hour or maybe even this day? We are commanded to relax, to enjoy our relative unimportance, our humble place at the table in a very large world. This regular rhythm of something different, a day to celebrate. Yesterday was my husband's birthday, and it also, for college football fans, was a really big football day. And this was exactly what Tyler wanted for his birthday. All football, all day. (laughs) So the first game. My son is living in Seattle, and he's a TCU grad. That's Texas Christian University. Go Frogs. They're undefeated. 
So their game at nine o'clock was an opportunity for our son to invite uh, TCU alums. There's this thing called a watch party. So someone appeared at our house whom I'd never met before, and he was there to watch the game, and we had snacks, and we set up the game, and you know, I want to be part of the party, so I'm, I'm there thinking about the sermon. You know, It's on my mind. I've got my notes, and no computer, but I'm just thinking about it, and that TCU game was pretty good. Anybody watch? Okay. We got down to the last, I'll call it 10 seconds, and TCU's behind. Their undefeated season is on the line. And sure enough, they get close enough that maybe they could get a field goal, and the clock's going eight, seven, six. At about six seconds, the team lines up. There's the line. There's whoever those next guys are. The holder comes out. And the kicker, completely composed, as if he had all the time in the world, walks onto the field. And you know how field goal kickers, they usually like kind of line it up. He doesn't do any of that. He just walks out. The ball's snapped. The holder holds. And whoosh, zero seconds, field goal TCU. We went crazy. We are jumping up and down in our living room. I'm hugging in, a, in like a, this circle with this guy that I just met. And we're screaming. It was like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. We're so happy. What if Sabbath was like that? What if Sabbath was like, we were just singing like, God, go God. You've done it all. Jesus is saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he was Lord of Tyler's birthday as well because football went on all day. At the end of the day, there was a UCLA-USC game. I'm a UCLA grad. He's a USC grad. And he got the win. It was killer. (laughs) Jewish Sabbath, people were invited to have someone, I won't even call them a stranger, someone you didn't know. Someone who was not yet a friend into your home. To be, to be part of that holy day. When I woke up this morning, there were dishes still in the sink. And I was like, oh, this is Sabbath. You can't do any dishes until the next day. <laughs> what if worship were like that? I had an experience sort of like this when I was worshiping in Rwanda. And I want to share a little clip with you. That's all there is because I was up in the leadership circle and I had to get up and dance. And that's how it was. In, in Rwanda, when you're worshiping and you want to say amen, you want to encourage, you go, amen, amen. It's a full body experience. You're all in. And I think that's what Psalm 92 that Eric read, that's what that psalm is inviting people to, to use their instruments, to use their voices, to be part of something bigger. It's a Sabbath psalm. This is the rhythm that Jesus is inviting us to, not to keep the law, but to welcome the spirit, like come in, bring that spirit in. So that's the first point. We'd have a time of regular, a rhythm of regular rest and worship. And you know, I think there's a temptation for us today to think that we'll be more productive and it's actually true. If you take a break, you're going to be more productive. You're going to be more creative. Studies show that even every 52 minutes, you should take a mental break if you're 
looking at your computer, and I know you all know we're supposed to stand up and walk around every so often. You have your watch or your, something that alerts you to that. That's true. But this invitation is not to rest in order to be more effective. This invitation is to rest because you belong to God. It's to notice God, to bring our attention into the holy presence of God. And when we do this, we, we also remember, as that passage said, that we have a humble place at the table. It's really not all about us. It's not all up to us. I was very much reminded of this as a person who was diagnosed with cancer, now a cancer survivor, amen, amen, 10 years ago. Recently, Pastor Scott's son gave me this book from Strength to Strength. He was inviting me to consider the second half of my life. So if I'm going to live into my 130s, it'll be great. Um, but I think I've missed the, the midlife moment, though I recommend this book to anyone who's whatever you think you're going to live to, over 30. Um, and younger, why not get ahead? I know some college students are here. You all are thinking about finals. Bless you. Um, that's finals week is that time when you're glad that your work gets done. And right before that, you think it's never going to end, but it is. And that's kind of this reminder. There, it, we're not unlimited. We're finite people. Time is measured. It's limited. In musical terms, a measure is, is a certain number of beats. And you, you get so many measures. Sometimes you get to repeat, but in life, not so much. Brooke says this. I've heard this story over and over. Uh, oh, he's talking about psychological clutter. The way that your, our life spends kind of building things up and building things up. I've heard this story over and over. People don't realize their unhealthy attachments in life. Unhealthy attachments. Just pause for a second. Do any come to mind in your life? Unhealthy attachments. To food, to drink, to fashion, to success. Unhealthy. Some things. Too much. Unhealthy attachments. They don't realize their unhealthy attachments in life until they suffer a loss or an illness that makes the important things come into focus. Researchers have consistently found that most survivors of illness and loss experienced post-traumatic growth syndrome. Post-traumatic growth syndrome. Indeed, cancer survivors tend to report higher happiness levels than demographically matched people who did not have cancer. Talk to them, and they'll tell you that they no longer bother with the stupid attachments that used to weigh them down, whether possessions or worries about money or unproductive relationships. The threat of losing their lives prematurely took a jackhammer to the jade encasing of their true selves, the why of their life. I'd say that happened to me. It was like having a jackhammer peeling off barnacles of things that, that I didn't need to care about anymore. Everything from what I ate, I only want, wanted mashed potatoes with butter, to what I wore, sweats and a sweatshirt. But the people that I talked to and the moments that I got to share with them, wow, those were treasures. But it's been over 10 years and that sense kind of wears off. That post-traumatic growth syndrome, you kind of get used to it. I, I've kind of grown out of it, if you will, and I hate that. And it came to my attention last Thanksgiving when one of my family members kind of pointed this out to me. And 
I, I won't take a whole lot of time to tell you how bugged I was that the hotel we stayed in didn't clean the stairwell because there was this chicken McNugget in the stairwell. And when we walked down the stairs, there was a chicken McNugget. And when we came back that evening, there was the chicken McNugget. And when we went out the next morning, there was the chicken McNugget. Why did I not just pick up the chicken McNugget? It just was driving me nuts. And it was making me think like, this is a bad choice. And why are we staying here? And ugh, I just was going down a bad path. And then we were at dinner one evening, not Thanksgiving itself, thank goodness, but we're at dinner one evening and this secret comes out that everybody else in my family knew but me. Like, why did you all have a secret? It's kind of like on the level of like lottery tickets, kind of a secret, you know, that they were all in on. And I just got really bugged. So bugged that one of my family members said to me, mom, you are going to regret behaving this way. <laughs> Ouch. Like, it's Thanksgiving. I'm supposed to be a leader of gratitude. I'm supposed to be setting an example. And instead, I was carrying this like burden and barnacles. Not a spirit of celebration and joy and gratitude. Jesus is inviting us to remember that time is limited. You don't want to live that way. You want to live as a person of gratitude. And maybe some of you are thinking, okay, she's brought up Thanksgiving and that's taking me way down a path. Maybe you're going to be alone this Thanksgiving and you're concerned. Maybe you're going home from college and you're concerned about being back home with your parents for a week or a month. I would invite you to consider that the time is limited. It's measured. I was helped in thinking about this um, in one, later in this book. Um, Brooks talks about uh, teaching at Harvard, and he asks his students, how many Thanksgivings do you think you have left? Ooh. He said, it, it gets their attention, and it gets my attention as well. If I follow suit in thinking about my own parents, it's something like eight. The point isn't to depress anybody. It is to remind us that in denominating time, in memorable, scarce events, we have a much better sense of its scarcity. Thus, we use it more wisely. This is the same idea as saying we should live each day as if it were our last. If we followed this insight, we'd probably sort out our workaholism and our success addiction problems. This is a cognitive error in thinking. So we're limited in this life. What are we going to value? What are we going to live into? Because Jesus is saying, you have a connection to eternity. Could we live those eternal values? Could we be the presence of Christ? Could we be salt and light and people of hope today, in this moment, in these circumstances, in this Thanksgiving? What's holding us back from that? In her book, Braiding, Se uh, Braiding Sweet Grass, the author Robin Kimmerer describes a moment like this, getting her attention just into the moment. And I know many of us struggle with getting attention, focusing in the moment. She says this, maybe there's no such thing as time. There are only moments, each with its own story. And then she begins to reflect, and maybe you've had this experience of watching a drop of water like slip down the edge, in her case, of a cedar. 
I can see my face reflected in a dangling drop. The fisheye lens gives me a giant forehead and tiny ears. I suppose that's the way we humans are, thinking too much and listening too little. Paying attention acknowledges that we have something to learn from intelligence that's other than our own. Listening, standing witness, creates an openness to the world in which the boundaries between us can dissolve in a raindrop. The drop swells on the tip of the cedar and I catch it on my tongue like a blessing. What a moment. It's a moment like that TCU moment, only different. God's inviting us to these kind of moments, these sacred moments, these sacred everyday moments. Time's limited, but in a way, it's unlimited. And then thirdly, we're supposed to practice this play and prayer. We're, we're supposed to kind of notice where God's breaking in. And I had the opportunity to go uh, Backpacking, And this was one of my great moments in the summer. I had the opportunity to be backpacking, not with just my pack on my own back, but shared with a llama. And my llama really enjoyed his, I wasn't actually supposed to let him eat too much, but he did have to eat and he, would, he grazed. Um, his name was Stanford and I was thankful for him. Um, I also had a group that I was with, and there's our group. We had just descended this very steep slope that our llamas had a very hard time with. And this group had a practice, I'd say, of playing and praying. What we did every morning was we got up, and before we got everything ready, it was almost like the reverse Sabbath, like we packed up all our bags, and we packed up the llamas. And if we did all that in due time, we had a moment to just stand together and kind of breathe in the day. Just give thanks for the day, breathe it in. We weren't all Christians, but oddly, like three out of six of us were, and that gave us this opportunity to even share some scriptures and in those breathing moments. And I would invite you to be thinking about how you might start your days, how you might just acknowledge the presence of God in your days. I do this in my bed with the deep breathing. Like, okay, God, here I am. I belong to you. And I just breathe in, breathe out. This also has a benefit of keeping your lungs working very well. So see some of these practices, they have health purposes and spiritual purposes. At the end of the day, we would gather around the campfire and each evening, one of us told essentially our life story and to this group and and we became quite close. It was kind of like gathering around these candles or in our home uh, during Advent, we have always had a practice of the Sundays of Advent, lighting a candle, especially true when my kids were small. We'd like dim the lights, turn off the TV, put the phones away. We added fondue as an extra incentive. Little fondue, sterno light, you know, eating in the dark with the candles and just having this kind of holy moment with our family. And I would invite you into these practices. How do you start your day? Just, just notice your breath. How do you close your day? And I would say in the middle there somewhere as I leave the house, my husband often asks me, what's one thing I can pray for you today? Like what's the big thing in your day? These are little practices reminding us that we live and we breathe in the presence of God. 
So we're coming into this season, a season when we have maybe a lot of to-do lists. Maybe we have anxiety about how people are going to get along that we're going to be together with. What are we going to talk about? Are there going to be tense moments? Is somebody going to overdrink? Am I going to be by myself when I wish I were with others? Am I going to be with others when I wish I were by myself? (laughs) Do you have a long list? Like it's When Eric mentioned Christmas anxiety, you're starting to think, oh, Christmas list, I need to give gifts. I have a friend who this year is giving all gifts of experiences. I wonder what it would be to have Jesus be Lord of our Christmas gift list. Maybe church would be on there. I don't know. How will you prepare as you approach this season? I would just invite you. Next week's the first Sunday of Advent. I'd invite you to kind of a season of preparation. We are welcoming the God of the universe becoming a human being. That's, it's a true Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Let him be Lord of your own life, your own days, your own moments, your own lists. Please pray with me. Great God, we thank you that you have brought something new into our lives, into the life of human history God, that you uh, are pouring new wine in and we wanna be new wineskins. We wanna say yes to your spirit. We wanna say yes to your lordship over our lists, over our lives, over our sunrises and our sunsets, how many ever we get. So come, Lord Jesus, teach us how to praise, teach us how to worship, bring to mind the ways that we might honor you this Sabbath day. In Jesus' name, amen.